Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And this morning we'll be completing our third week and completing the sending and the return of the 72. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. So please turn to Luke chapter 10. I'd like to begin our time by reading in its entirety Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. As you recall, Jesus has come down from the mountain. Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. And ahead of him, he sends out 72 in pairs, preparing the people, functioning very much like John the Baptist. Let's read Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandal, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first say, Peace be to this house. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for you. The laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But... Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread over serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, 
and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So we'll be studying in particular verses 17 to 24. We've looked at Jesus' commission and send the 72. And now, strangely, no record is given of their ministry. For all of the attention to detail that Luke has given in Jesus' instructions and preparations for them, we don't get a word of how it went. How long were they gone for? How many cities received them? How many cities rejected them? We don't know. Luke gives us a lot of detail about Jesus sending them. And then, the next time we look, they are returning. And again, the emphasis is on Jesus. So I think the emphasis here is fundamentally on Jesus, commissioning and sending them, and how Jesus responds and interprets their ministry. Titled this, Return of the 72, and the Joy of the Sovereign Lord. That word for joy or rejoice dominates this passage. Notice it. Um, in 17, the 72 returned with joy. And Jesus, in verse 20, takes that joy. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And what does Jesus do in the very next section? He prays in that same hour, he rejoiced. So the disciples return in joy, and Jesus tells them where they really should place their joy, and then Jesus rejoices, and then it ends with Jesus announcing to them that they are blessed or happy or joyful. Joy, joy, joy dominates these three paragraphs. And so we're going to dive in, looking at the first point, verses 17 through 20, the Lord's joyful instruction. The Lord's joyful instruction. And it begins, the 72 returned with joy, saying, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So point A, the 72 returned in joy. And we shouldn't assume that. This is, this is news because Jesus has warned them that their, their journey and their ministry will be arduous, difficult. There will be threats. He sends them out like sheep among wolves. They go with no supplies. They go with no money. They go with no extra bag. They go dependent entirely upon the hospitality of people whom Jesus warns and predicts may well reject them. And here, all 72 return. And they don't return with their tail between their legs. They don't return um, in, in any sort of discouraged way. They come back in joy. I think it's safe to assume their mission was a success. We don't know with what percentage the cities received and rejected them, but Jesus told them that would be the center of their ministry, proclaiming peace on those to whom it fell and received it. They would, they would have peace and fellowship upon those towns that rejected them. They'd wipe the dust off their shoes and leave. They have fulfilled their ministry. I think that's faith, fair to say. They would not be rejoicing if they'd been unfaithful. So we don't know with what percentage failure and with what percentage success completed their ministry. They've obeyed their commands. They return in joy. Next, they all return safely. They all return safely. And two weeks ago, when we looked at Jesus sending them, I pointed out to you that Jesus is shepherding his flock. And it may seem strange for the good shepherd to send his flock in among wolves, apparently defenseless. But notice, all of his sheep were accounted for. Not even one of the 99 has gone missing. They, they return, and they return in joy. He has shepherded them. He has, we'll see, protected them and empowered them. 
You think of the words of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Dwelling in security. And again, the Lord shepherds us. That does not mean we don't go into danger in difficult places. It just means He goes with us. And they return, all of them. And they are rejoicing over a particular crescendo of their ministry. Notice that. Even, they said, the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, there was no record in the commissioning of Jesus empowering them to, to, to heal or cast out demons, but I think by implication it's there. It's, it's what Jesus did if you turn back in chapter 9, beginning verses of Luke chapter 9, where he sends the 12 out. He explicitly, in verse 1, he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure disease. I think something like this happened as well because as he gives them their instructions on what they're to do, he tells them they are to heal the sick in the towns that receive them. So even though he doesn't announce that he has given them authority to heal, by telling them to heal, by implication, he's given them that authority. And here, they're commanding demons. Demons are obeying. And I would suggest, especially if you continue reading Luke into Acts, that to, to take that upon yourself, to presume that authority, like seven sons of Sceva did, is not something God endorses or blesses or ends well. So if they're commanding demons, I'm going to assume that Luke has omitted the redundant instructions that Jesus authorized them to do that. And they come back marveling at the pinnacle of this ministry. Remember, these demons are afflicting people, tormenting people, and here they command them and the demons obey. Now we've seen and marveled at Jesus' authority to command demons. We've seen the showdown with him and legion. We've seen the, the man in his hometowns in the Capernaum synagogue that he commanded the demon out of. But here, what is remarkable is Jesus transfers this authority to these 72. Not only does Jesus have this authority, but the one to whom Jesus grants this authority has this authority. The sovereign Lord can empower his disciples, his emissaries, his people. They return safely rejoicing in their power over demons in Jesus' name. And then Jesus, point B, shares in their joy. He responds to what they say. So they return, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. And then Jesus responds to that. He shares in their joy. And he makes that statement in verse 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. As a lot of ink spilled on Satan falling from heaven, I think it helps to start by recognizing Jesus is referencing an Old Testament text. Keep your finger here, but turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. Jesus has already referenced Isaiah 14 once in our passage here. This is the second reference to Isaiah 14. And even though the, the quote that we've seen is from verse I believe 14 of Isaiah uh, 14. I want to just start at the beginning to set the context. Isaiah 14, verse 1. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob and the people will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captives those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. So, so what this pronouncement against the king of Babylon was reversals. Those who held you in bondage and slavery, you will 
take control of them. They'll be subject to you. Those who dominated and ruled you, you will rule. Do you see how it even sets up the theme here? These demons have been tormenting the people. Now these demons are being tormented. Now these demons are being dominated and ruled. Verse 3, the Lord has given you rest. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you have made service, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Now what's going on here is this is in the first instance a prophecy, a, a rebuke to the king of Babylon. But what we see, and this happens in a couple of instances in the Old Testament in Ezekiel, we, we see a line standing behind the king of Babylon is apparently Satan himself. We know that the world is held in Satan's sway. Jesus identifies all those who are not in him as sons of Satan. Your will is to do your father's will. Satan is the God of this world. And so the rebuke is to the king of Babylon, but the rebuke is also, in some ways, identifying him with, personifying him as Satan. And so you sort of think of the rebuke going to the king of Babylon, but through him also to the one who stands behind him. Look at verse 12, where the connection is made. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the earth. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the furthest reaches of the pit. Now, Jesus has already referenced that. If you remember, when he rebukes Capernaum, Oh, you Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be cast down or brought down to Sheol. There's the reference in verse 15. Jesus has already cited this passage just back in Luke 10.15. But here, he makes this statement, citing verse 12. How you were fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Okay, back in Luke chapter 10. What do we make of this? What are we to make of this? Jesus cites a prophecy in the first instance against a now dead king of Babylon, personifying him as Satan and says somehow, somehow connected to what his disciples have done, he's connecting this fall. Now, the verbal for force specifically is on the falling. Literally, Jesus says, I saw from heaven Satan falling, or I was seeing it. It's an ongoing process. Satan's falling from somewhere. He never actually arrives anywhere. He's falling. He's falling. And Jesus is saying, while they were gone, seeing this, or in their ministry, he's seeing this. He's connecting the two. How, how, does that, how does that work? What I think he's saying is this. Satan is a deposed ruler. Now, the New Testament, in most instances, connects the, 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 the defeat of Satan with the cross, resurrection, and ascension. In 1 Corinthians 15, for instance, that's where Paul makes that point. Oh, death, where is your sting? Because Christ has tasted death for us and been raised, death now has any power over us. He's just awaiting his enemies who made a footstool for his feet. And so Satan is cast down and defeated through Christ's death on the cross. 
But here also, Jesus is, is connecting the advancement of his kingdom. Remember, that was the phrase that was said in both the cities that received and the cities that rejected. What happens? The kingdom of God is drawn near. His kingdom is advancing. This, this king and general is advancing his kingdom. And in the advance of his kingdom, he sees Satan's further being cast down. So the implication is as these disciples faithfully carry out their ministry, as they go and proclaim God's peace, household by household, town by town, whether they are received or whether they are rejected, it is furthering the defeat of Satan, the advance of Christ's kingdom, seen specifically in Satan's foot soldiers and minions, demons being subject to them. Does that, does that logic make sense? So in the, the advance of Christ's kingdom, as his soldiers, as his people go out, and as they are exercising dominion over those who exercise dominion over them, just as this passage in Isaiah says, you will control your captors. As they then command and subjugate demons who had been subjugating others, these reversals are taking place. As the gospel goes out, Jesus is seeing in that partially Satan's further falling, the weakening. I saw Satan fall from heaven. Then this is, this is critical because what it does for us is it identifies and, and, and really makes clear the freedom and the deliverance that Christ in the first instance was coming for. Turn back to Luke chapter 1. We've talked about how the big mistake that many of Jesus' contemporaries made about him was they were looking for a Messiah who was first and foremost a geopolitical deliverer. They were very conscious, aware, and resentful of Rome's rule over them. And they were looking for a Messiah who would come and basically whoop up on the Romans. And Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, prophesies in chapter 1, verse 71. Chapter 1, verse 71. Oh, let's pick it up in verse 70, actually. as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days." Now, many Bible commentators stumble over this because that sure sounds like geopolitical deliverance. It, it sounds awfully familiar to God delivering the people from Pharaoh so that they might go to Sinai and worship and serve him. And yet here, back in chapter 10, and I'm going to read a quote from Joel Green, something remarkable is crystallized and clarified if it hasn't been clear up to this point. Joel Green writes this in Luke chapter 1, talking about Zechariah, prophecy in 68 through 79 speaking on behalf of God Zechariah had characterized salvation as deliverance from the hands of our enemies so Zechariah has has characterized at least in part what the Messiah will do is deliver us from the hand of our enemies because Luke Acts does not document Israel's rescue from Rome Zechariah's words have puzzled some Bible readers of Luke so Jesus is supposed to come deliver you from the hand of your enemies, but they never get delivered from Rome. In fact, in 70 AD, Rome smashes them down. Here, however, a key interpretive move is introduced. This 
is the explicit identification as, of Satan as the real enemy that is to be overcome. Rome is not the adversary. Only one of the true adversary's partners, joined by many others. In the current scene, Satan's minions are referred to as snakes and scorpions, and more generally, by all that would harm these messengers. That is, reject the good news manifest in Jesus and their redemptive activity. When it is recognized that Luke identifies the enemy as the cosmic power of evil resident and active behind all forms of opposition to God and God's people, it is plain that Zechariah's hope has not been dashed, but clarified, and indeed radicalized. Which is to say, this makes it crystal clear, first and foremost, the deliverance that Jesus offers, the freedom that Jesus offers, the, the being freed from captivity, is not first and foremost against human oppressors and human captors, but against Satan and his forces. It is a spiritual freedom, a spiritual deliverance that Christ is coming for. He's identifying the real enemy. The real enemy who stands behind all of their um, other enemies. So, he's identified their ministry as first and foremost impacting and participating in the defeat of Satan. <clears throat> then Jesus speaks, point two here, that he has empowered and protected them. How is it then that these 72 have gone out as sheep among wolves, gone out with no provisions, no extra money? And how have they all come back safely and rejoicing? Well, again, like I said before, the, the good shepherd has shepherded them. How has he done that? Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. He's protected them by empowering them. He's given them this power protect them. They can bring them back safely. He cites two Old Testament passages that have already been cited in Luke. He cites Deuteronomy 8 and Psalm 91. When Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, both of those passages are referenced. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses is recounting to the people of Israel how the Lord led them through the wilderness. And he writes, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions. Now, there's that pairing of serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water from the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble and test you, do good to you in the end. So that reference is basically saying in the same way that God supernaturally protected Israel as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, God, Jesus, has given them authority and power to have that same protection. And he also references Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is actually the psalm that Satan quotes to Jesus. Satan quotes part of it and stops a key sentence short. In Psalm 91, Satan in the temptation, tempting Jesus to jump off the temple, he, he says to Jesus, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their heads they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Now Satan, for some reason, doesn't go on to quote, you will tread upon the lion and the adder. Maybe that was getting a little too close to home. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot, remembering the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so Jesus is referencing that. What we're looking at is divine protection. And Jesus has 
not only given them the power and the authority to rule over demons, but He's promised them in the same way that God promised and protected Israel in the wilderness, in the same way that Psalm 91 promises this protection, He's protected them. Why do they come back safely? Is it because they're resourceful? Is it because of their cleverness, their resolve? Their... No, it's because of the Good Shepherd. The flock is safe because of the Good Shepherd. There's another point here, and that is that when we are in, in the service of God, doing His work and His ministry, nothing can touch us, nothing can harm us that God doesn't permit. Satan is powerless to oppose God's will. Now let me be clear. God's will may be that there is opposition. It means to humble Paul, he allowed false teachers into the church of Corinth who opposed him. And Paul has to deal with that. And he talks about the thorn in his side. It may well be that God purposes to, to humble us, to, to test and refine us. But here's the point. When you are in God's service doing His work and His ministry that He's called you to do, Satan is powerless to interfere beyond what Christ permits. Powerless to interfere. Because the Good Shepherd is sovereign. That's, that's the sovereign in the title. The, the joy of the sovereign Lord. Here's a Lord who grants His power and authority to His people. Here's a Lord who keeps His sheep safe and brings them all home. Each and every one of them. But then Jesus not only shares in their joy, but point C, He redirects their joy. Yes, there is something to rejoice in in watching Satan and his minions fall, watching their defeat, watching the exercise of power but he redirects them to something more fundamental. It's like he's following the cord back to the wall. I think the danger might be something like this. If all we do is focus on the things Christ is doing through us, and, and they get it. They get that the demons are subject to them in Christ's name. It's not their own power. It's, it's mitigated power. It's mediated authority given to them in Christ's name. They get that. This follows the cord all the way back to the wall to something more foundational. He redirects their joy when he says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice. Your names are written in heaven. Which is to say, there would be no ministry. There would be no power. There would be no crushing of the serpents underfoot and trampling on scorpions were you not in God's book of life. Which is to say, point one here, rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in your salvation. The logic is this. This is the fountainhead from which all the other blessings flow. Power over sin. Giftedness from ministry. The, the ability to serve God, to speak His Word. All of that flows out of this fountainhead of salvation. Without being Christ, without being in God's book, None of those things happen. The reference, by the way, to, to this notion of being recorded, names written in heaven, applies. it starts back in Exodus, actually. This notion of there being a book, a book of life, a book with names in it. Moses, interceding for Israel in Exodus 32, first mentions it, saying this, If you will forgive their sin, but now, if you will forgive their sin, but if you will not forgive their sin, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the, Moses, the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. First reference to this book. Moses doing something very similar to what Paul will later do. I could almost wish myself a curse for my kinsman's sake. Moses saying, look, if you won't forgive Israel, don't forgive me. And it's this reference to this book. The notion is a record that stands firm, a record that stands unchanging, because God doesn't erase, does he? 
If God doesn't write and then, try to correct it. If you're written in God's, it's written. And Jesus is saying, rejoice in your salvation. This is a good word for us. We can get caught up in what else is going on. Don't lose the joy of your salvation. God is doing many great and wonderful things. I get a great vantage point to see God do many great and wonderful things in people's lives. And here Jesus is saying, I, I don't care if God's given you the power to go out and command demons. Don't lose the joy. Don't let that eclipse the joy. You're His. Your names are written in God's book. Christian, if you're here this morning and you're Christ, don't ever lose that joy. I think he's saying something a little further, though, and possibly controversial, but you're out by then. Not only rejoice in your salvation, but rejoice in your election. Rejoice in your election. Oh yes, the topic of election and predestination, always controversial. Those are biblical terms, by the way. Everybody who's biblical has some doctrine of election and predestination. You can't help it. Those are words found in the Bible. The debate is over what they mean. The debate is over what they mean. But everybody, the Arminians, the Calvinists, and everything in between, there isn't really anything in between. Um, well, there's all these people that say there's something, but it's really like there's the Calvinists and there's the Arminians, and it very quickly becomes that. But everybody has a doctrine of predestination and election. Those are biblical terms. The reason why I bring this in is where Jesus goes in the next paragraph and where the New Testament continues to unpack this notion of a book of life, it makes it clear. Well, I'll just read it for you. Some more passages picking up on this book of life. Well, what I'm saying is it raises the question, how did your name get in here? Now, it's possible from what we've just read only that when these people came to faith, God in the book of life. Okay. Disciple A comes to faith in Jesus. Disciple A gets name, gets written in the book. In which case... The disciple, the person coming to Christ, would be the decisive worker, and everything that happens is God working in response. Now listen to Revelation 13.8 and 17.8. All who on earth dwell and worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world, in the book of life, the Lamb who was slain. Get that? If your name is in this book, you're to rejoice in when did it get there when you came to faith when you believed before the foundation of the world revelation 17 8 and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world so as the bible continues to unpack this book you don't get your name to sort of show up at some point either it was written before god ever said let there be lights or it's not there. God's not coming out with a revised and updated edition of this book. What he wrote, what he wrote before the foundation of the world stands and either has your name and my name in it or it does not. There's no updates, revised editions, no, not at all. What this means ultimately is God is the one who is sovereign over choosing you or me. Yes, we do believe. We come to Him in faith. You must repent and believe. You must come to Christ. What we learn through the Bible is the impetus and the initiative for that is not suddenly you found this good part of you and you held on to it and you improved it and you gritted your teeth. No. Christ called you. His Spirit convicted you. The Father removed the veil. He gave you eyes to see and ears to hear. He gave you all the preconditions so that you would see Christ as beautiful you would come to Him. 
Jesus makes that very clear, in fact, in the very next passage. What, what I want to stress and why I bring this out here is this. Most of the times, the doctrine of predestination and election, that when you follow the cord all the way back to the wall, ultimately it is God and His choice that is foundational and primary and decisive. Not that that neutralizes or relegates our choice. We make real choices. God's choice is foundational. It's because the New Testament, when it brings this up, doesn't bring it up to start a Calvinism-Arminianism debate. It brings it up to incite praise. If I'm right, what Jesus is saying here is, rejoice that before the foundation of the world, God wrote your name in the book of life. Rejoice that God chose you. And that removes all boasting. Let's be any hint of, well, I cast out 72 demons. Well, I cast out 84. Well, I cast out 106. I had 10 towns receive me. I had eight towns that received, you know. Lest there be any of that, Jesus is saying, rejoice that God chose you. Rejoice that God chose to do something with you. He didn't leave you alone. Now, just keep reading. We'll go on to the next point, and I think you'll see that that's clearly the logic of Jesus. Clearly the logic of Jesus as we move into the Lord's joyful prayer, verses 21 to 22, the Lord's joyful prayer. And what he rejoices in is his Father's sovereign, gracious pleasure in hiding and in revealing spiritual truth. It's a strange thing to rejoice in. (laughs) Strange thing to rejoice in. In that same hour, he rejoiced. So here's the transfer. First, the disciples come back rejoicing, and Jesus says, I rejoice with you, but hey, let's redirect that joy to God's choice of you. You're in his book. Rejoice in that. Then Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit. He prays. And that rejoicing leads to thanksgiving. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, both an intimate name and a sovereign name. What does he thank God for? That he has hidden these things from the wise. Just stop and get that. Jesus is rejoicing and thankful that God the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, hides truth from people. That's what it says. I thank you. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Who who, who makes the decisive decision to who sees and who doesn't? To who has ears to hear and who doesn't? To who understands spiritual truth and who doesn't? According to Jesus, in his thankful prayer, his Father. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm thankful that some people use their free will to come to you. He's saying, I'm thankful that you blind some people and I'm thankful that you grant sight to some people. You can only do that if you believe in a sovereign God. And how is Jesus thankful for that? I mean, we, that? Probably the first half, that's what we struggle with the most. How do you thank God for blinding people? Well, if you remember, turn back to, to Luke 8. And I'll move quickly here, and if we need to, we can come back and and talk about this more fully on another Sunday. In Luke 8, Jesus begins telling parables. Remember that? And the first time he brings up this notion of blinding is here. And we talked about that at length, and I won't won't repeat that here, except to say that one of the things we studied when we, when, we, when we looked at this in verse 9 and 10, the disciples asked him what the parable meant. He said to them, to you it has been given to know. 
or to take the language of Luke 10, to you little children, the Father has revealed these things, that you might be given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. For others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. I'm doing it this way, Jesus says, so some people won't get it. Sounds awfully similar to what Jesus is praising the Father for. And when we studied that, and you can go back and listen to the message, what we concluded was that when God blinds people and when God deafens people and when God makes it so they cannot undersee, it is in response to their own idolatry and sin. and It is a judgment. It is just. So I think what Jesus is saying in essence is this, Father, I rejoice and am thankful both for your justice and your grace. In some cases, you justly, you righteously, you fittingly blind, proud people. And that is right, that is good, it's praiseworthy. It's what they deserve. And I praise you that you also reveal truth to children. Jesus is able to praise God for his justice and for his grace. The assumption being God is in control. God is in control. The Apostle Paul makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, another passage making it clear the decisive factor in our salvation is not ourselves, but Him. Now don't misunderstand me. You, you must believe. You must come to Christ. But why do you believe? And why do you come to Christ? Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chose, God chose, God chose foolish things to shame wise things. God chose. He did it intentionally. Why does God delight in hiding truth from the proud? They deserve it. It's a fitting consequence. It's right. And he delights in further upsetting the apple cart by revealing truth to the children, the uneducated fishermen. He's going to overthrow the world. He's going to rock the world with a bunch of uneducated fishermen and a tax collector and a terrorist. That's what zealot means. They were trying to kill the Romans. He's got this little band of men and he's going to shake the world with them because God delights in bringing to naught the things that are with the things that are not. And it only works if God's sovereign and choosing. It only works if God is the one who ultimately decides I will reveal my son and my truth to whom I will. I'll have mercy in whom I have mercy, and I'll harden whom I harden. Next, he rejoices that his father has given him all things. He rejoices that his father has given him all things. Here's the foundation for what he said earlier. The reason Jesus can grant them this authority, the reason why Jesus in verse 19, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you, is because his father has in the first instance given him all things. And he rejoices in that. By the way, this is a massive Christological claim. Massive Christological claim. Jesus is saying all things that the father has, and the father has all things. Because when you use all you got to use it in a, in a qualitative sense, right? If I say I gave you all my money, I just mean the money I had. 
I say, hey, is everyone here? I just mean the people who we'd expect to be here. But when God gives all things, we're talking about all things, aren't we? When God hands over everything, he's handing over everything. And Jesus says, my father, you have handed over to me. Okay, all things have been handed over to me by my father. All things. This is the foundation for why Jesus can grant this authority. And then what's remarkable is this revealing activity that Jesus praises his Father for. Jesus begins to participate in it. We're seeing intra-Trinitarian work here. The Father is first praised because he blinds and he reveals. And then Jesus moves on. Not only does he rejoice that his Father has given him all things, he rejoices in his now authority to reveal the Father. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And apparently included in that all things is the prerogative to hide and reveal. So first he praises his Father because he hides and he reveals. He blinds and he gives sight. Then he says, the Father's given me all things. And then he starts speaking about how he does that. No one knows the Son except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So he praises God, his Father, for doing something that then he claims he is doing. <laughs> Remarkable. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. He is sovereign. He decides who to reveal the Father to. And what this means is, what we know from elsewhere in the Bible, you can't know or come to the Father except through Jesus. If Jesus doesn't choose to reveal the Father to you, no amount of study is going to get you there. No, this, this is the futility of any other religion, any other attempt to know who God is, whether it's Orthodox Judaism, studying the Old Testament. What does Jesus say? No one knows the Father except the one the Son chooses to reveal Him to. Or any other religion. I am the way, He says, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Massive sovereign claim here. The Father has given me, he says, all things, and I decide who knows the Father. <laughs> Absolutely stunning claim of authority and sovereignty. John 1, verse 18, John writes, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. And in Jesus' high priestly prayer, when he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for us in John 17. He says this, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Have, have you thanked the Lord Jesus Christ for revealing the Father to you? Because he takes credit for it. And he says, that's what you should be rejoicing in. That you would turn and say, God, why, why would you choose me? Why would you open my eyes? The person's next to me. Why would you do that? You can get the answer from Deuteronomy. Do not say the Lord loved us because we are great. Why does the Lord love you? It's because the Lord loves you. As Jesus said, such is your gracious will. Rejoices his sovereign father's gracious pleasure in hiding and revealing truth. He rejoices that his father has given him all things, and he rejoices in his own exclusive authority to reveal the father. Finally, 
the last two verses, we look at the Lord's joyful benediction. Joyful benediction, which is a closing like doxology or praise. Turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. So he expresses a state of blessedness or joy or happiness. What is it? Two things, quickly, and then we'll have a closing song. First, blessed are those who have seen and heard Jesus Christ. That's, that's what he's saying, right? Blessed are your eyes, blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see, did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Notice again the coupling of eyes to see and ears to hear from John 8, a little earlier. It connects those two things. Blessed are those who've seen and heard Jesus Christ. He's giving them this blessing. They're here to see it. Peter writes this concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It's not just these people from the Old Testament, but angels themselves are looking. When's it, when's it going to happen? When's he sending his son? When's it going to happen? And he's saying, you get to see this. Now, unless you want to leave yourself from that group, we get to see it as well. Why? We have his word. This very account in Luke, written by the Spirit, interpreted by us, by His Spirit, with eyes to see from His Spirit, we behold the glory of the Lord. We see this. Let me read to you how the Apostle Paul puts it this way. In 2 Corinthians 4, we talked about God opening eyes, blinding eyes, shutting eyes. How are people saved? Even if our gospel is veiled, 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So people perish. Why do they perish? There's a veil over their face when they look at God's Word. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. So why are people perishing? They're perishing because there's a veil. The veil's blocking their sight. They're not seeing. What are they not seeing? They're not seeing in the Scriptures the light of the glory of the gospel, I'm sorry, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Which is to say, you can, if the veil is removed, in God's word, see that glory. Then he says, verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's how you got saved. Your heart was dark, your eyes were blind, your ears were deaf, and one day God sovereignly, and I say sovereignly because when he's comparing this to Genesis 1 in the creation, when God was, said, let there be light, who was standing by him saying, hey, you know, it would be a really good idea if you made some light? Or if the light was saying, hey, hey, I'll, I'll come to you. I want, no. He, there was nobody and nothing around, and God spoke into the nobody and nothing, and everything came into existence and obeyed. And he says, in the same way, you and I were walking around, and God spoke into our hearts and said, someday back in 1999 in August, in Jeremy Kidder's heart, let there be light. 
I saw the glory of Christ, and I saw his beauty, and I wanted to come to him, and I, and, I belie- and I came to him, and I did it freely. I did it without anyone twisting my arm. But I did it first because he sovereignly revealed him to me, and he does that through his word. Jesus says, blessed are the eyes that see and the ears that hear. Understand, you can see and hear the Savior and his word. This isn't a blessing just for those people in that day. Secondly, blessed are those who share in his ministry. I think some of what these these disciples saw and heard was the ministry they shared in. I'm going to call the worship team up as I finish this point. In, In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul makes this statement. What then is Apollos, what is Paul, servants through whom he believed? As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. So this is the same imagery Jesus was saying earlier. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. For he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages from the Lord. We, and here it is, we are God's fellow workers. Now make no mistake, who does the real work? The Lord does. It reminds me of the, the story of the mouse and the elephant going across a rope bridge. And when you get to the other side, the, elef- the mouse says to the elephant, we really shook that bridge, didn't we? I can... But the Lord dares to call us his fellow workers. Now, we're fellow workers who only can do anything because he chose us and only can do anything because he gave us authority and only can do anything because he protects us. But we're still doing stuff and we get to share in his ministry. We get to share in the redemptive activity of the Lamb of God. And we today can share in this ministry and we today announce peace to others and and announce to them God's judgment and announce them the gospel. We we can share and be God's fellow workers today. And that blessing remains for us as well. And all of this culminates in joy. I think it's most fitting that we close our service this morning singing joyful, joyful, we adore you. The, The verses that you probably are familiar with that we didn't sing earlier in the service. Please stand as we prepare to sing.